0: We pray. Amen. Please be seated and turn again to James Chapter Four. James Chapter Four, looking especially at verse nine. Verse nine. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Our communion season begins with humiliation and repentance. Our communion season begins with this theme Because God rejects impenitent sinners and receives repentant sinners. It is God's will that all who approach him come with humility and repentance. This is clearly seen in our text in James chapter 4. James is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing to the church. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings to believers under the picture of the twelve tribes. And in all five chapters, he addresses his hearers as brethren members of the visible church and then in chapter 4 he commands them to humble themselves why verse 6 god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble so they should submit before god resist the devil draw near to him cleanse their hands purify their souls be afflicted, and turn their laughter into mourning. In theology, we distinguish between the right to God and the way to God. The right to God is by what authority do we have to be accepted in the sight of God. That right is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Christ's blood is the all sufficient right and grounds for coming into the presence of our God. But the way to God is with humility, repentance, and seeking after His holiness. Take Isaiah, for example. When God's people come to him without repentance, without humility, without seeking after holiness, God rejects. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 15. When ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. When ye make many prayers, I will not here, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings before mine eyes. But when God's people come, in contrast, with humility, with repentance, with seeking after holiness, God delights. Isaiah 66 verse 2. To this man will I look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my words. And so God says, I receive and delight in those who are humble, penitent, contrite and seeking after holiness. And this principle applies to the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians 11:27 these well-known words: Wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The right to the Lord's Supper is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But you cannot profess to have faith in Jesus Christ and come without repentance. Come with pride. Come with sin in your life and you've not confessed it and you're not mortifying it. You can't come living in sin. But the way is humility and evangelical repenting of your sin, depending on his grace, and seeking the Spirit to walk in the Spirit and bear fruit in the Spirit and live a holy life. And so how are we to approach the Lord's Supper next week? Not in an un worthy manner but in a worthy manner humble low poor contrite repentant when these things are sincere god accepts and rejoices so let us this morning humble ourselves so that we may come in a worthy manner, and I want to look at three things in James chapter four, six to ten. One, mourn for your sin. Two, cleanse your sin. And three, grace for your sin. First of all, then mourn. For your sin. James uses very strong language in verse nine. He uses imperatives and commands for his brethren. Be afflicted, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. He uses strong commands so that we would know our repentance is not to be external. It's not to be superficial. Our repentance must be radical. We often misunderstand the word radical today. But if you check your dictionary, it's a beautiful word. Radical means especially of change or action, relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, far-reaching and thorough. That's the only kind of repentance God accepts. Not an outward, superficial, half-hearted, non-fruit-producing repentance, But a radical repentance that begins from within, is thorough, is real, is sincere, and bears fruit, meat for repentance. There's a wonderful phrase used in Hosea chapter 10. God's people are impenitent. And Hosea says in chapter 10 verse 12, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till He come and rain righteousness upon you. Fallow ground is land that is left without work upon it and it's growing with thistles and thorns. And if you go to fallow ground and just cast your seed it will bear no fruit so god says get out the till of my word and go to the fallow ground of your heart and start digging deep with repentance keep doing it by seeking the lord until he rains down righteousness, grace, and blessing upon you. And this is the evangelical repentance we need all of our lives. We need the till of God's word to break the fallow ground of our hearts, seeking the Lord with humility and confession daily. And he will rain down his grace from on high. And the same for the Lord's Supper. Every Christian has indwelling sin. Every Christian has besetting sins, Hebrews 12. We're not to be winking at those sins, tolerating them. But we are to be repenting of them. And Christians have seasons of our repentance. Sometimes we are so tender and sensitive to sin, we are daily turning from them and turning to the Lord. And then there's also other seasons. We're very dull. Sin comes to the mind, we agree, but we're not really doing anything with it. In a communion season is a time of revival. Stop. Where are you? What's your spiritual state? What's your spiritual condition? What's the temperature of your heart spiritually? It's time to repent of your sins. And here James uses four imperatives for us. Commands that are to be obeyed. The first is... Be afflicted. It means to feel the pain and misery of something. In the Greek, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament, but it's used many times in the Old Testament for a sense of soul trouble, soul pain, soul misery. Psalm 38 verse 6. I am troubled, I am afflicted, I feel my pain and misery, I am bowed down greatly. James is saying to his brethren in the church, be afflicted. Feel the misery and pain of your sin. A couple of weeks ago in our consecutive readings we read leviticus chapter 16 the day of the atonement that wonderful picture where the high priest comes and he puts his hand on an animal and confesses all the sins of israel and the guilt's transferred and one animal was slain and the blood is put in the holy of holies And the others as a scapegoat to run away. A wonderful picture of full forgiveness through the atonement of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But what were Israel to do before that day of atonement? Leviticus chapter 16, 31 says, There to set apart a day, it shall be a Sabbath day of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls. God doesn't say. Well all your sins are going to be forgiven. Now therefore. Activists. As, as if sin isn't evil. Your sins are going to be forgiven. I'm going to graciously pardon you. But you take sin lightly. You'll take my atonement lightly. And therefore before the day of atonement set apart a day and afflict your soul feel the pain and misery of your sin because then my grace will be sweet to you and this is what christians are called to do ezekiel uses a particular word throughout his prophecy of how we are to view our sin that word is loathe. Ezekiel 20:43 There shall ye remember your ways and all your doings wherein ye have been defiled ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evils that ye have committed The church of Jesus Christ is far too influenced by the health wealth And prosperity gospel. We take one truth of scripture. Rejoice. And ignore every other aspect of scripture. Should Christians always be rejoicing? Absolutely. But should our joy be without mourning. And afflicting for sin? Never ever ever. Until glorification. Because if you have sinned and you indwell with sin and you are besetting sin, you should be afflicted for that sin. You should feel that it is disgusting and filthy. That your sin is against the God who redeems you. It's against the saviour you love. Against the Holy Spirit who's in your heart. Against the word which you cherish. And you should think, how can I continue to sin against my God, against my Christ, against the Holy Spirit, against the Bible? Oh, how I feel and loathe and hate my sin. Is that you? Are you afflicted because of your sin? Or is it water off a duck's back? The second imperative is to mourn. We all know what that word means. To grieve and sorrow for something. The same word for the response to someone dying. You mourn for them, you grieve for them, you sorrow over them. Now when someone mourns for a loved one, you don't go and say, well, the person's died, it's a fact, now get over it. Do you? No. But the mourning continues, and rightly so. Same with our sin. We don't just wink at sin, we are to grieve and sorrow over our sins. In fact, this is a mark of blessing in a Christian's life. Blessed are they that mourn. How do you know someone's born again? How do you know someone's blessed of Jesus Christ? Because they mourn their sin. They will be comforted because of the full grace and forgiveness, but the fact that they're sinning still causes them to mourn. Grief and sorrow. In fact, if we're not mourning for sin, the Bible rebukes us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there is a sin. The sin of fornication. And the Apostle Paul comes and says, Ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned. So if you sin, And you feel no grief or sorrow for it. Paul says you're puffed up. You're full of pride. Christians need to mourn. Psalm 38. I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. So this week we are to be confessing our sins is it merely external is it simply a nod of the head or are we truly sorry for our sins we are not to be rending our garments putting some ash on our head for 40 days and think look at me I'm so sorrowful for my sin and yet their heart's still impenitent and they'll do their sin after the 40 days God says through Joel, rend your hearts and not your garments." The Bible says that this mourning, this grieving, this sorrow after sin is to be like the publican. When he went to the temple, he had such a sense of his sin against the holy God, he would beat his Rest. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. When was the last time you really beseeched God for mercy for your sin? And a 2 Corinthians 7 says, This is a godly sorrow. The mourning for your sin includes the sin in itself but much more than the sin in itself is the god whom you sin against he is your covenant god and because it's against him there is a godly sorrow the third imperative is to weep to bewail to lament Psalm 119, 136 says, rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. How many of us have literally wept because of sin in the world? Or do we just complain because things are not as we would want them? Or do we understand These things are sinful, and therefore we weep. How much more should each and every one say of us, Rivers, run down mine eyes, because I do not keep thy law. If I look at the Ten Commandments, and if I meditate on them, and if I think what do they require of me, and I examine myself according to such law, Do I weep? Now maybe it's not necessary that we weep outwardly with tears, though it would not be a bad thing at all, but good. We should all be weeping within ourselves for sin. In Judges chapter 2 verse 4, when the Lord came to his people and said, you're committing idolatry, you're sinning against me. How did they respond? They lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of the place Bohim, the place of weeping. If we truly hate our sins, would we not weep and lament? If you look at godly examples, you probably look at one of your great heroes of the faith is the Apostle Paul right and rightly so so far as he follows Christ we follow him and this mighty Apostle and all that he did we should look with admiration Paul tell me about your sin read Romans 7 he says in my flesh there is no good thing how many Christians say that today I will to do good, but because of indwelling sin, I often do not do the good. I sincerely will not to do evil, but because of indwelling sin, I keep doing that evil. And then there's the weeping, there's the lamenting, there's the bewailing. Oh, wretched man that I am! Do you feel that in your flesh... In your indwelling sin, you are wretched. That's what we're called to feel because of indwelling sin. And the final command in this verse is a spirit of heaviness. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to heaviness. Heaviness literally means gloom and depression. There's a time for everything. There's a time for joy. There's a time for laughing. And there's a time for heaviness. When you grieve as a sin against the Lord, it's a time for heaviness. When it's a time for a fast day, it's a time for heaviness. When there's a time to prepare for the Lord's Supper, part, not all, but part of that time is a spirit of heaviness to say woe is me I am undone for I am a man or a woman or a child of unclean lips. Is this true of you? When was the last time you could say, absolutely in sincerity, I had such a sense of sin, I was afflicted, I mourned, I wept, and I turned my laughter into heaviness? We do not take sin seriously. Let's be honest. We do not see how evil and wicked and debauched and abominable sin is in the sight of God. When God says in Proverbs chapter 6 of many sins. He says the Lord God hates them. Yea they are an abomination to them. We read that and we agree with that and go on to the next verses. But if we read Proverbs 6 and lingered and say. Oh God help me to truly see this. Send your Holy Spirit upon me so that I would truly know how much you hate my sin and how much my sin is an abomination in your sight. Maybe that should be our application. Pray over Proverbs 6 and beseech the Holy Spirit to make that real in your heart. But if you really want to feel your sin, look to Jesus. What made Peter weep for his sin? Luke 22 reveals, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered his word, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Because when we're looking away from Jesus... It's quite easy to sin. And it's quite easy to feel quite comfortable in our sins. But when we're looking face to face to him whom our souls love, then it's different. Think like a a child or an adult even. Outside of the sphere of friends and family and spouse or parents. So easy to sin and not really feel that bad for it. You know it's wrong. It's a wee tiny feeling of badness but not much but then you see your wife then you see your husband, then you see your parent then you see your friend and then guilt and shame comes in look to Jesus this week look to how much you do love him and then look to see how much sin is against him and you will be afflicted you will weep you will mourn and you will be heavy Secondly, cleanse your sin. In verse 8, again, more imperatives. Cleanse your sins, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Cleanse means to make something dirty clean. Hands, the things that we do. Purify to make holy hearts. The inner man, the soul. How do we do this well these things can be both done in the sense of justification or sanctification so think of cleansing in justification cleansing means full forgiveness of sins through the blood of jesus christ freely given first john chapter 1 verse 9 if we confess our sins He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. But cleansing is also sanctification. That's our work. What we are to do. Remember John 13, and Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And Peter says to Jesus, Why are you washing me? I need to wash you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If I do not wash you, then you have no part with me. And Peter's like, oh, wash me entirely because I want to be with you. Then Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're already washed and cleansed except your feet. And what he means there is, my blood has cleansed you in justification, but your feet are still to be washed in sanctification. And the particular sanctifying work is love the disciples. Or first John chapter three When the Lord returns you will see him as he is, and he who has this hope, what happens? Cleanses, purifies himself. That's sanctification. And James is using this language here, cleansing and purifying yourselves, not in the context of justification, though there's an application to it, but in the context of sanctification. Through the word of God, through prayer, through the Holy Ghost, you are to engage in the work of sanctification under the illustration of cleansing and Purifying. Because that is what sanctification is. We are not to passively wait till things are done in us. But with God in us both to will and to do. We are to will and to do in the work of sanctification. So if there's a particular sin in your life. You don't just wait passively for it to be conquered. But through the means of grace, you are to engage the will and do it and put to death that sin. And so in your heart and in your hands, sanctify yourselves. Begin by prayer. Pray Psalm 139.23 Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. God, reveal to me. Is there sin in my heart? Is there sin in my hands? Reveal it to me. So that I may repent and sanctify. Except there be new obedience, there is no repentance. So if someone feels really sorry for their sin, and they even confess it to God, but they're not producing obedience, there is no real repentance. Repentance. And this is why many Christians make resolutions for communion seasons. They look at real sins in their lives and they say, I am tired of these sins. I know there is full forgiveness, but I also know there's grace for sanctification. And I'm going to focus on these one, two, three main sins in my life so that I have fresh blood for forgiveness and fresh water of the word to sanctify. A good practice. It makes repentance real. Maybe it's a practical thing for you to make resolutions during this communion season. What sins do you really want to put to death? What graces do you really want to grow in? Where do you truly want to obey God? But James mentions the heart and the hands here. Cleanse the hands. Purify the heart. Let's start with the inward part. Purify the heart. The heart is the whole inner man. It's your thinking and reasoning and your imaginations and your wills and your desires and your plans and your purposes and your affections. Where in your heart do you see impure things? That's where you need to repent. James says double minded. Purify your heart ye double minded. Double minded means to be of two minds. To be faltering. To be wavering. Are you double minded in your heart? Are you faltering? Are you wavering in your heart? Do you have one foot in God's ways and another foot in sin's ways? Maybe you have faith in your heart. But maybe you also have unbelief in your heart. That's double-minded. You're to purify The unbelief. You have to confess it. And repent of it. And bewail it. And seek to grow in faith. Maybe there's an idol. Maybe you try to serve God and mammon. Serve God and self. Serve God and money. Serve God and pleasure. Serve God and insert anything else as Lord. You need to purify your heart. Love. Who's the chief object of your love? Not just in word, but in deed. Is it God solely or God and? There's double-mindedness. What's the source of your joy and happiness? Is it God and everything goes well in my life? There's double-mindedness. Rather than God alone in Christ Jesus. Jesus therefore the most sorrowful, pain-filled, diseased, uh, poor Christian is the most joyful Christian. But sadly, things come into our lives and we say, if I just had that, I would be more happy. Oh, if I didn't have this in my life, I would be more joyful. There's double-mindedness to <laughs> The Bible says, do not be anxious for anything. Are you worried? Are you troubled? Are you concerned? Is there double-mindedness there? God's sovereign, but why is this in my life? God's wise and good in his sovereignty and providence, but he shouldn't have done this in my life is double-mindedness to be purified. Says in verse 8 drawing nigh to God. Are you double-minded and you're doing that practically and outwardly but not inwardly? When you come here and you're singing the psalms is your voice singing the praise of God, but inwardly you have no sense of the presence of God? When you're praying, is the object of your prayer the Father in heaven who's listening to the prayers of his children? And you're full of faith in the hallowing and the petitions and the requests. Or they're just words and it's just a shot in the dark. In your private life, are you reading your Bible? And you are praying, but there's no real fellowship with the Saviour. This is double-mindedness, to be purified. But then secondly, he says here, cleanse your hands. That is all that you do. Psalm 24 says... Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands. So those who live godly lives. Are your hands clean? Or are your hands full full with the unclean? Let's just look at the chapter. In chapter 4. Verse 1. Are you at war with another brother or sister in Christ? Is there enmity and strife and division between you and another brother or sister? Verse 1 Your hands are unclean. You need to repent. You need to go to the person and reconcile before going back to offer the gift on the altar. Verse 4 you're filled with worldliness. Your life is filled with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You're living like the world. Your entertainment's just like the world. Your leisure is just like the world. Your speech is just like the world. Your hands are unclean, and you need to repent. Verse 6 Pride. You're puffed up. You look down on people. You have uncleanness in your hands and you need to repent. Verse 12 and 13. You're going about judging other Christians. You're making yourself the judge, and you're going about, and you're more concerned about other people's sins than your own sins. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? So when you hear sermons, you're thinking of him and harp but not self. When you see a weakness, a frailty, an infirmity, a lack in another Christian's life, you're very judgmental about it, but you're very tolerant of self. If that's us, we are unclean in our hands. We need to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. And it starts with confessing and repenting of our sins and sanctification is the fruit of true repentance. Search your heart, search your life, search your motives, search these things and truly repent. But thirdly and finally, grace for our sin. If we stopped here, we should all be hopeless. But God has given us gracious, wonderful promises in our lives, and there are three promises in this text. Promise number one, verse 10: "Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. If you humble your soul in penitence, in confession, in repentance, in poverty of spirit, in mourning and afflicting, and lamenting and seeking the Lord. Here's the promise. I will lift you up. This is the gospel after all. He who exalts himself shall be abased. But he who abases himself shall be exalted. The first shall be last. But the last shall be first. Those who seek to keep their life shall lose it. But those who lose their life, they'll have everlasting life. So as we humble ourselves with penitence and contrition of heart and seeking of the Lord, it is a sweet-smelling savour unto the Lord. And he comes down to us in the dunghill and he lifts us up. Second promise, verse 6. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So when we are conducting ourselves in pride and presumptuousness, God says, I resist you, no blessing, no grace. But when we humble ourselves, God delights and says grace upon grace. In Isaiah chapter 57, it says that God dwelled with him who was humble and of a contrite spirit to revive the humble and revive the contrite spirit. That's a beautiful word, revive. Life and quickening and power and strength. Third promise, verse 8. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. When your soul draws near to God by faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father in the name of Christ will send his spirit and he will draw close to you. You will know the light of his countenance as he smiles upon you. You will taste the Lord is gracious as he forgives you and enables you. He will show you a manifestation of his glory to fill you with wonder and awe. He will give you comfort and consolation in your afflictions. He'll give you his omnipotent strength for your weakness. If you draw nigh to me, I will draw nigh unto you. And in the Lord's Supper, if we come in a proud heart, unrepentant, presumptuous, we cannot expect the Lord to draw near to us. He says i resist the proud but if we come with sincere evangelical repentance in christ he gives grace to the humble and he will draw near to us i was reading very recently how harris a welsh preacher of the 1700s and he speaks about one communion in may 25 1735 for 3 weeks he had been repenting of his sins feeling his unworthiness and then he says quote at the table christ bleeding on the cross was kept before my eyes constantly and strength was given to me to believe that i was receiving pardon on account of that blood i lost my burden i went home leaping for joy i said to a neighbor Who was sad? Why are you so sad? I know that my sins have been forgiven. Oh, blessed day! Would that I might remember it gratefully evermore. Why? God gives grace to the humble and he draws near to those who draw near to him in humility. And so, our first work. This week is the work of repentance. Let us afflict the soul, mourn our sin, weep with lamenting, have a heaviness of the awareness of our sin. Let us confess to God. Let us zealously repent with full our endeavor after new obedience, depending wholly on His sovereign grace. And may God fulfill his own words. As we draw near to him in the supper. He draw near to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven. We pray that the spirit of grace and supplication will be poured out upon us all. That we would all have this evangelical repentance. And we would know both justification and sanctification. And thou wouldst help us to feel our sin. And then, O Lord, we would know the preciousness of thy amazing grace.